Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogues. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. I hope you enjoyed last week's conversation with Pastor Danny Prada. I'm going to be bringing you another Danielle Dan interview this week with my guest, Daniel Kent. He is the editor-in-chief and occasional contributor for Greg Boyd's blog, Renew.org, and is the host of the wildly popular podcast, Greg Boyd, Apologies and Explanations. He is the author of Confident Humility, Becoming Your Full Self Without Becoming Full of Yourself. He has also written Diamonds Mixed with Broken Glass, The Training of KX12, Volume 1 and 2, are currently available, all available, at Amazon.com. And Mr. Dan Kent is currently working on The Training of KX12, Volume 3, which is a modern-day version of the classic C.S. Lewis Screwtape Letters. This week, I traveled to Maplewood, Minnesota, to Woodland Hills Church, where you can hear Pastor Greg Boyd and others, such as Oshita Moore, Bruxy Cavi, Paul Eddy, And if you're really lucky, Dan Kent, sermonizing a crowd hungry for new theological concepts with a little bit of a psychological and philosophical spin. Set up inside the walls of a converted Kmart building, I met with Dan Kent at Woodland Hills Church. We discussed the ditch of bigness and the ditch of smallness. We talk about the principle of proportionality, which is a concept that is discussed by Dr. Greg Boyd in one of his books, Satan and the problem with evil. And then we dive into ideas and talk about what hinders us from growth, how does social media impact our connections, how the class clown has it rough, how we're starting to see monsters without masks, and how it's difficult to have fun without minimizing serious problems. Dan Kent then shares about how he sees that there can be no growth from praise. He talks about the idea that we are numb brains and we discuss the importance of having sexuality sermonized. Dan then offers ideas in suggesting that seminary courses need to include classes on sex, money, and power. One of the best things about this conversation was that I connected really easily and authentically with Mr. Dan Kent. It was comfortable and I was at ease in having the vulnerable conversations that we did even before recording. And Dan Kent's just a really nice guy. I I highly encourage you to pick up his book, Confident Humility. It's one of the top 10 books in the last few years that I've read that have really impacted me deeply. It was a book that I read at a particular time on my path of transformation that had I gone without his words, I don't think that I would be as transformed as I am today. So Dan, thank you for the Chipotle. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the autograph and the books. And everyone, enjoy this episode.
you keep doing whatever's going on here with space. And so um, his whole family was like, divorce her, we're out of your life. And I'm like, well, they did that in the beginning. Either leave her, we're done with you. And he proposed to me. Mm. And then do not marry her, choose us. Mm. And we got married. And then, so they've always just laid out ultimatums. They had this idea for him. It didn't match with it. And you know, there's just a lot of drama. So it's better to deal with drama on your own first. So yeah, but enough about me. <laughs> What's old and dull and boring in your life? I, uh, I like old and dull and boring. Those are the things that I'm most happy about. Yeah. Um, basically writing. That's, I love writing. It's, yeah. But it's a, I wouldn't say boring though. It's, um, it's like a, it's like the waves of an ocean. It's just that comforting rhythm. Mm. If you look at it one way, you could view it as boring. If you look at it another way, it's kind of hypnotic and meditative. Yeah. And that's, that's the way I, that's the way I view it. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's my favorite thing. I love that. So. I love that. Yeah. No, I, I, I drive with that. That's kind of how I feel with writing, too. And I notice on your Twitter, you always just kind of post just random things. <laughs> and I think, yeah, he... Do you see words oh, in words, images? Yeah. Oh, gosh, words. Yeah. 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 yeah like even even on the, the Renew uh, post for today, it was... What was it? Um, something... Uh, oncological technicalities or something like that. This is just the way it sounded. I just love the sound of it. But And then uh, you wrote to it. And I just wrote it. Yeah, I just wrote it. And even though it probably wasn't the perfect word for what I was trying to say, it was just so melodic and beautiful that I, I put it. So mm. whatever. Yeah, I do that a lot. I, I'm constantly writing stuff down and journaling and just randomly. And my husband, he always laughs at me too because I'll just have this look while I'm getting dinner ready. <laughs> I'll be right back. And I have to go jot something down, and it's like, yeah, it hits you like mm -hmm. this. And sometimes it doesn't even make sense until you really think about it later. Right. But I love capturing ideas like that. That's, yeah. I, I like your Twitter feed, and it's like every night yeah. you say something, and then good night. Good night. And it's <laughs> good. It's part of your end of the day meditation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Do you meditate? I don't. You know, I well, I, I probably do, but not formally. Yeah. Like I'll, I mean, I'd probably everybody does this, but I'll just sit in my office, and that's which is my favorite place at home. Is my office at home, and mm. and I'll just sit there, and then I'll stare for an hour, and mm. no music, nothing, just staring, and then I'll realize, oh yeah, I'm in my office, and then I get back to it doing something. But, and I don't know if that's meditation. It's not. I think it is. It's. I don't seek it out. It sort of hits me. Yeah. But oh, then, I can relate to that. Yeah, mm. and my office is my favorite space. I have made it. My Temenos. It's the place where I go to regroup and just, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I stare off a lot and just think or just sometimes don't think and wait for the thoughts to just kind of unfold. Yeah. Yeah, huh. it's good stuff. So your last book, seriously, and, and you saw that I wrote to it. it. Yeah. It hit me in such a way. It was like part of this, I don't know, cascading I was going through. I had just ended relationships, professional and personal, and I was going through this book, and I, I think I dealt with the fallout of my expectations mm. so much better after having read your book oh. about being confident and humble at the same time. Mm. And you kind of tapped on an idea about pride and shame 
that is kind of a prevalent thing right now that we're talking about. I feel mm-hmm. like within the last few years, a lot of people have been tapping into why shame is bad and how we can yeah. break it down and look at it and and basically kind of transgress it into something else. So what um, what was it that made you come to this realization of the ditches mm-hmm. of bigness and smallness? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, as a kid growing up, I, you know, just had my mom. When mm-hmm. She was very young. And so, and I didn't have a dad in the picture, and we moved a lot, uh, kind of like you did. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I feel like I it, it was really important to me to to find people and to find voices that I could learn from to figure life out because I didn't have any in, in, really in my family. My mom was fourteen when she had me, so she was kind of growing up with me. So she yeah. wasn't really the voice that I could go to. And so I really depended heavily on the voices in in culture and in church and and. The problem, though, is that I ran into these two opposing voices. <laughs> and as a kid trying to figure life out, this is really problematic. I, I went to church, and I you know, I sort of saved when I was 17, 18 years old. And, and I love this church, this community. They just showered me with love, and they made me feel like I belong there. And it was kind of my first taste of what I think a real community was. Mm-hmm. And um, But they also had this very negative view of people. And... You know, like in their prayers and in their theology and in their discussions about God, they would talk about people as being t- totally depraved, mm. despicable, uh, worthless, and and um, just a lot of negativity. And it was almost like um, it was sort of like a, a badge where, like, if you had this negative view, that you were somehow holy. That mm-hmm. means that you're holy if you talk negatively about yourself. And um, but I had a hard time with that because they didn't treat me that way. They treated me with love, and they they were accepting, and um, and all of the media that they used, uh, you know, like the paintings, the the children's books, and the 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 paintings that they had of, of Jesus. None of those portrayed Jesus viewing anybody as despicable mm. or worthless. And, yeah. um, and then at the same time, I was uh, in in col- or in high school, and this is in the early '90s, and the self-esteem movement was like just going crazy, mm. and um, and like everywhere you turned. The society was telling you that you are wonderful, you are great, you are special, and um, and so I got pulled in both directions. You're terrible, you're loathsome, you're wonderful, you're special, and so I'm getting pulled in both directions here. And I didn't really know. They both seemed to make sense in some weird way, but and they were both definitely there was something good about each, but there was also something that I I felt was bad about each and I didn't really understand what was going on there until I, I got to college and I because I had to figure out which one was right yeah. because the the answer to the question like am I good fundamentally or am I fundamentally bad it sort of shapes your thinking on everything yeah and so I felt like I I, boy, I need to have a resolution to this am I fundamentally good or am I fundamentally bad yeah. and uh, when I got to college I, I wrote this paper on, on humility and I, I came upon Matthew 23 and it was just like the light of God shined and and I saw what was going on, and uh, it, and what Jesus teaches in Matthew twenty three is that um, neither one of these perspectives can be true because one perspective that says that you are fundamentally bad that's basically shame, yeah. and then the other perspective which says that you are fundamentally good that's basically arrogance, mm-hmm. 
Mm. And and Jesus says that humility is stands against both shame and arrogance. And so uh, somehow in Jesus' teaching on humility, he shows that both of these perspectives are, are flawed. And so then I pursue that, and that's sort of what the book is about, is, is trying, to per, trying to pursue how is it that humility can be opposed to both shame and pride, and then how is it that that then deconstructs these two perspectives and, and gives mm. us something better. Um, so yeah, that's that's that was sort of a quick synopsis of the journey, but it was a 20-year journey, so... 20-year journey. Yeah. And so, where'd your journey start? What what call it? I was reading your bio on your website. You taught your first course at 25. Yeah, I was 25 years old. That was a trip. I, uh, you know, I was in a PhD program in psych, and it was actually a PsyD program, technically. But they had this uh, professor at Bethel who he had to be gone. It was sort of an emergency situation, and they needed somebody to teach intro to psych. And since I was in a PsyD program, they said, yeah, you can do it. So I was 25 years old, and um, and I was teaching intro to psych, and there were 76 students in this class, and some of them were older than I was. And um, and I just went in there, and I said, yeah, all right, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to pretend like I'm a good teacher. And, and I did, and it worked out pretty good. And I got really good student reviews. And so when they needed a theology professor, um, I was Paul Eddy's teaching assistant for several years. Mm. And, uh, so they let me do an intro to theology, too. And I ended up doing probably 20 courses of intro to wow. theology. And it was such a blessing. And it was such a great honor. And I wish I could do it more now. But uh, unfortunately, because of the market, there are many, many, many PhDs who are looking for teaching opportunities because there's not mm -hmm. a lot of schools anymore. So the uh, the opportunities have sort of dried up there, but yeah. um, it was a, a, a tremendous honor. That's, that, so you like to teach. Oh, I love it, yeah. yeah. It's so fun. And you like being in front of a crowd, in front of Absolutely. an audience, and yeah. just kind of watching their eyes light up when you reveal something. Yep. Yep. see epiphanies going on Absolutely, out there. Yeah. I love that. Well, and it's just fun to, um, to get people excited about it because... I think what I, I specialize in, and I'm learning this, I specialize in taking dull theological or discipleship topics and making them sexy. Yeah. Um, because I just think that there's a reason why these things are important, and we just have to find out what that reason is. And, uh, I love how so. you say that. Yeah, you do. That's, yeah, there because so much of it is dull. I've been forcing myself to go through some of the really dense theological early writings, and I think. Yeah. Can someone help me? You know, because a lot of it is so thick, you're like, I don't know even how to pull it apart. Right. And I don't know how many times, like, and then going beyond that, like philosophy and looking back at Plato and the works of Socrates, and I think, I've been trying this for, like, 15 years. Yeah. I'm just now going, oh, huh, right. I get that now. Right. Now right. I get it. Duh. It's like maybe I needed to dive in other areas first before I could go back to that and think about it. And, let it register and process. Yeah. Well, it's so great now that we have resources, especially for those early philosophers. And mm. just they talk different, you know, and, they, and they, their manner of discourse is different. And, yeah. Um, so it's really helpful to have people now where you can just go to and say, okay, what does Plato mean in the Republic in this section? Yeah. And you have YouTube specialists who can just kind of, well, what he really means by that is this. Yeah. That's so helpful. Yeah, those are the kinds of things. Um, I do this. There's this philosophy course um really quick and easy i think it's like less than seven minutes of video they break down every every philosophy you know that they can compile and i was like well i homeschool so i was like here we go you're gonna get the intro to philosophy i never got in high yeah. school i mean i pined for it but 
We did, just didn't have the options for my schools. Although I did take this really amazing uh, religious class that taught us about like so many religions. Mm-hmm. And from there, I think I was like 16 and I was like, I'm going to practice Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for like five years. And then, um, well, then I came into Christianity more because I didn't grow up in a traditional. My parents were rebels. They were hippies. They were always looking for something else to try and explain whatever it was they were thinking. And so I had the freedom to do that. But when I started getting into Christianity, it was like, this is a completely different playing field for me. And then you start getting into the different eschatologies and hermeneutics and what is even theology. I remember when I started really diving into it, so I'm talking to my sister, she's like, what is theology? And I'm like, really? Or you talk to someone else who's like a churchgoer for 20 years, and you're like, Calvinism, what's that? Yeah. Oh. And so then I started going, oh, I don't feel so bad. A lot of other people don't get this either, and it's just not, it's like hidden away in pockets of society. Yeah. And then you're like, well, you're a cult. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Well, I can empathize with that. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a cult, but I I don't think I am. Yeah. Or do you ever feel like you're an alien? You're just like walking around. You're like, sometimes I just don't even get people anymore. Yeah. Yeah, Well, people uh, change. That's for sure. They do. Society, society changes, and Mm. you know, um, it's weird. Like you know, you 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 get old, and I think what happens is, you know, there's a lot of things that happen. But like we each get stuck on issues. You know, Mm -hmm. where we. We wrestle with them, and they're important to us. And everybody values different things. And um, and sometimes it's we see something that's so so important to us, and we end up spending four or five years just like cogitating about it and wrestling with it. And then by the time you come out the other end of that, society doesn't care about that anymore. Yeah. They've moved on to other things, and you don't really know what they care about anymore. And it's and you have to sort of get reacclimated. And um, so yeah, it's, society always moves, and then sometimes society cares about things you don't care about. It's, and it's uh, and so you have to ask, well, what am I gonna care about? Because I don't care about what they care about. And yeah, um, yeah. And, it's, uh, and there's a lot of tough. things that we are told we should care about. I sometimes feel like it. Maybe there's. It seems like there's so much chaos because we have so much information. Mm-hmm. We don't even know what to do with it. Yeah. And so then it's like, well, now you have to be for every single cause <laughs> right. because if you're not, you must hate people. And right. I didn't even know about that cause. So like. How did you know about that cause? And, right. and um, yeah, do, and I think you really tapped onto something in that series you did with Woodland Hills. Uh, you did the soft robot. Oh, the bad robots. The bad yeah. robots. Yeah. Um, I really appreciated that whole series. It really made me pay more attention to how I am on social media and I'm still really awful on social media sometimes like and I get off and I go oh I let it get to me today damn it that sucks but I really like some of the things that you um you you talked about in that sermon um well Greg Boyd touches on this idea the principle of proportionality Mm -hmm. and so that's that the potentiality for for anything to be good or bad and we kind of have to wrestle with that tension and figure out the balance and so I'm just wondering if you could, what have you learned from social media? Oh, man. That, where you need like, to, to, to self-therapize yourself. How, do you, how are you dealing with it? Boy, there's so much. I'd say a few <laughs> things. First of all, the principle of proportionality is such a brilliant insight. And um, just to, to define that, the, the idea there is that anything that has the potential for good 
typically has the equal potential for bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if, if, because basically, anything that has a potential for good has some type of power in it. And power can be used for good or bad. So, yeah. um, and and that, that principle is so valuable because you can look at anything, not just in technology, but in a person's life. Because there are a lot of different types of power. And people tend to think of power as political power. Yeah. Um, but there's, of course, financial power also. And, um, and intellectual power. That's a type of power. Mm-hmm. And, and all of those things can be used for good or bad. And equal amounts of good and bad. And, uh, you know, beauty is a type of power. And um, humor is a type of power. Yeah. And, and when you look at all of those things, you see examples of people who use any of those things for good things or bad things. And, yep. and so that's just extremely helpful in understanding because another reason why that's helpful is that people tend to think uh, that once I get to a certain level in my life, you know, a certain level of success or a certain level of money, then things will be easy. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case because of the principle of proportionality. There's always going to be a corresponding temptation for destruction. Yep. There's always something destructive. At No matter how high you go, there's corresponding destructive opportunity and and so that's why people they they will they will become more successful but they won't really feel like they've grown Mm. even though they're financially successful even though they've hit their ideal body weight or even though whatever they feel euphoric but they haven't really grown as a person because there's now just more opportunities for destruction and I think social media is is very uh, much along those lines there's a great opportunity to connect and I've made friends you included because of social media yeah yeah and um, but obviously we know the the dangers in that as well for me personally what I'm learning is uh, that you know I on social media I just I'm one of the types of people who just like to share goofy things and just be funny. And um, and I've, I was always the class clown. And mm-hmm. social media is just like a new platform to be the class clown. And, yeah. um, and right now, the, the, the world and social media has made being the class clown really tough because, yeah. um, because you know, it's, it's fun as the class clown to, to expose things that are absurd and silly. Um, to kind of take the mask off the monster and show the silliness yeah. underneath, you know. But the monsters are very real right now. Mm-hmm. And there is no mask. They're just real monsters. Yeah. And it's really hard to, to be humorous and funny in a world like this. Um, and so one of the things I'm, I'm learning is how can I be funny and how can I have fun without minimizing the seriousness of, of things that are going on. And that's something I'm still kind of processing and working out. The other thing is um, trying to better and better understand the limitations of my perspective as, as a white male. Um, uh, I thought that that was sort of an overblown issue, uh, but I'm starting to see that it's not. And so I'm learning that I think that um, there are things that I need to understand that about just my life situation and my circumstance that really does shape my interpretation of reality in ways that are not uh, fully accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's important to me because something as a writer and as a thinker, the, the kind of the, the capital, the resource that I'm kind of dealing in is uh, being able to assess reality. Yeah. And, and if I have something that's limiting my ability to assess reality, that's also going to limit my ability to write and to uh, have um, cogent things to say about, about yeah. reality. So. 
I hear that. It is tough as a writer. I uh, I write for Patheos Progressive Christian. And a lot of people say, you're not progressive, Danielle. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I would also say that. Yeah. Um, it's fine. My husband just made a comment yesterday. I... Uh, I, I was getting into it with people yesterday, and I'm like, I can't. Someone was like, said something to me that I just couldn't. I'm like, no. He said, I'm a globalist anarchist. And I said, no, no, okay. I, huh. I, and I said, Corey, I need some Glenn Beck. <laughs> and he's like, he just started laughing. And he's like, you hated Glenn Beck last year. Mm. And I said, I know, but he, he's making sense to me right now. I just want to listen mm. to someone make sense right now. And so... Um, it's hard. I get wrapped up in it, but I hear, I hear what you're saying about that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really tough because we see all this stuff. It just inundates us and we think, okay, I get it now. And then someone is like, no, you don't get it. Right. And then you have to go, why don't I get it? Yeah. And it's really difficult, um, to let people know you do get it because I think in a lot of instances, um, this is just my own experience is w- when some people do see you as a white person too, they're like, we know how, how ignorant you are. Right. And I get that. Uh, trust me. I went from Minneapolis to Olivia, Minnesota, <laughs> Renville, Minnesota. It was so weird that our family moved out there. They literally did an article dedicated to us. Wow. This whole family that moved from the cities mm. all the way out here. Like, what's that was weird. <laughs> and tr- I moved to Renville, and I was like, wow, it's really milky out here. Like, mm. You know, and it was like, is there a Mexican restaurant nearby? What? Right. No, there's a Burt's place. What's that? So it's the cafe. What's a cafe out here? Because in the cities, it's different. I mean, it was a whole new worldscape for me. And I start telling people about, you know, where I've been in my experiences. And they're looking at me like, you were the only white kid in your school? Yeah. Not my school, my class. No, you're not going to get that around here. And I would get excited when I'd see black people or other people of color. I'd be like, what? There's not just what? You know, and people look at me like, we don't talk to them. And so then I was like, oh, it's a different reality. And I hated it out there. I hated it. I was like, I need to get the hell out of here. I can't raise my kids out here. What? They're going to have no experience, no no culture, no diversity. And I, I hated it. Um, but I, I left and I went right back. Hmm. Because then I hated it out here. Yeah. Because I was so used to the slow life. But it is different. It's There are many perspectives that are hidden away. And I would say in rural areas that just don't get it. And when you try to explain it to them, you know, unless we're very careful with our approaches, it's hard to make them understand, well, your view is narrow without it seeming like you're attacking their character. And social media is hard because there's no tone. I've come to, if I notice I start getting into it with someone that I actually want to stay connected to, I get on the video thing in Messenger and I'm like, look, hold on. My tone was not in there. I'm sarcastic. I'm sassy. I'm snarky. Right. But hold on, you know, and I try and heal those potential breaks. I, and I kind of get frustrated. People don't use the video thing or the, the audio as much as I think we should. Yeah. I'm doing, I push people. I'm like, let's just get on Zoom and talk. And right. they're like, yeah. what? You want to, like, look at each other? Right. Yes, I do. Let's yeah. look at each other because <clears throat> then you... And I think that also censors us, too, mm-hmm. because it's real easy to say something real mean yeah. and 
shut the the device down and you don't have to deal with what you're seeing on their face how that react how that how that made them feel and yeah. so we're getting away from being able to empathize with people yeah that's right yeah I yeah love Zoom. Zoom's great. oh my gosh i know i love it you can get like so many people and just talk well i've only done well, I have done once with multiple people, but usually it's just me and one other person. So, yeah. Um, doing interviews for for Renew, but yeah, um, yeah, it's the best Zoom and and the and and I think I, when I FaceTime people, mm. what are you doing? Well, isn't yeah, that why we FaceTime. both have iPhones? <laughs> people are like, no, that's too personal. No, wait a minute, yeah, I don't like FaceTime. <laughs> oh, I do. So there's no control over it. I don't want to accidentally FaceTime somebody in my butt. <laughs> You know, like a butt oh. dial. Oh. So that's okay. Well, my I don't accidentally call people. I don't know, but I usually don't You're carry my phone. No, I never have my phone on me ever. It's always on the charger, hidden under a stack of books and files. And trust me, my phone rings, and I'm like, where? I don't know where it is. Yeah, well, I'm horrible. It's, it's a weird dynamic of um, separateness and connectedness. Mm. It's like we want to be have our lives, but we also want to connect to others. And just kind of we shift on that spectrum. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of complications as you try to integrate others into your own life. And, yeah. Um, and everybody wants different levels of boundaries. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's what we're dealing with. I know. And yeah. Technology amplifies things. And it's a crazy, crazy time. Yeah. Well, and, and Yen, um, you said... We are numb brains floating gently down <laughs> algorithmic content streams. What made you come to that conclusion? <laughs> Partly because it just sounds cool. Numb, <laughs> numb brains floating gently down algorithmic content streams. Um, I, I think uh, you know that's that's what social media does. And and Dave Morrow uh, gave a sermon, you know, in this series that he talked about just how the goal of of Facebook. And their algorithms is to put us in a numb state of mind um, mm-hmm. that that makes us susceptible and that causes us to not want to leave. And it, the state of mind that it creates is an uncritical state of mind. And, and so we're numb. We're just sort of numb. And um, that, that that we're very vulnerable in that state. Mm-hmm. And that's the state of mind that. Uh, algorithms are designed to create and um, which that's that's what they want they want us to not leave they want us to always be on and to always check it and so that's advantageous for them I think it's in our best interest to be aware of that Mm -hmm. and to use social media with that knowledge so that we're more proactive and intentional with our attention and um, and so that's something that I'm trying to get better at Uh, I think one thing that's really helpful in that way is um, I trying to schedule Twitter time because I love Twitter. I just mm. I love it so much, and um, so I schedule it. And then sometimes I'll schedule my posts too, where that way I don't have to go. I don't have to log in to do it. Mm. I can just schedule it, and then it it just automatically does it. And that's yes, so I've got yes. like I've got posts scheduled, you know. And this this is ridiculous, but they're like jokes, you know. Oh, this would be a really good Easter joke. So I'll like you know, do the Easter joke and I'll schedule it. So if I die, I'm gonna still have tweets oh, coming, and it's gonna be really creepy. It. It's gonna be really creepy. How is Dan still tweeting? <laughs> In fact, I was, his funeral. <laughs> I was thinking about tweeting a tweet for like 2032. Oh my gosh. You know, or maybe 2080. You know, so like after long after I'm dead, and just like oh heaven is great, they have Twitter here. Oh. It's just like would that be great? Oh. 
Mm. Okay, so you also co-host a podcast with Greg Boyd. Gregory Boyd, yep. And um, there was a question that you all were presented with. Oh, shoot, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) You know about this. So I just wanted to kind of ask you, well, you, okay, so the question was something along the lines of how do I practice presence? Meaning, how am I being consciously aware of Jesus while having sex with my spouse? Yes. And Greg admitted that he (laughs) wrestled with the question (laughs) and that you kind of believed in an autonomous or maybe like God gives you a little bit of privacy. Yeah. And I giggled at that because (laughs) I wrestled with it too. I actually came to a point where I was like, no, right there Hmm. in every moment and and. Because for me, it's just too hard to conceive that I do have a space from God. Mm. And I know you don't really believe we have a space from God. I mean, you both led to that in the conclusion that, yeah, you know God sees everything, but you don't want to think about God seeing everything. But the reason I thought I wanted to push a little bit harder on this is because for me, from, from what I'm seeing, I think we need to push a little bit more sexuality into our sermons, into spirituality, into church, especially with a lot of the you know, the scandals that are coming out and we're hearing about, you know, pastors being involved with telling women to be quiet about whatever sexual abuse or just physical abuse. And then we have, and it seems like it's just always been a problem. We have, you know, sex abuse with children, sex molestation, uh, sex trafficking, sex slavery. And so I know, I know, Mr. Greg Boyd has done a few sermons where he talked about sexuality a little bit. But I just kind of help wonder, is that maybe something that could be injected into sermons more? Yeah, and yeah I would love that. In yeah. fact, one of the things that I, I've said over and over and over again is, you know, you go to seminary and they don't talk about the important things at seminary. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at, like, why do churches fail and why do leaders fail, it's always sex, money, and power. Yeah. And there are no classes on sex, money, and power in no. seminary. It's like, why not? No. This is this is the number one risk of a leader is sex, money, and power, and yet there's no classes on it in seminary. Mm-hmm. It's preposterous. And yeah. the reason is because um, they're hush-hush about the money, I think, because... You know, it's like we, we all need money. <laughs> yeah. So they don't want to, you know, if you can get money, that's great. And there's kind of like this sort of like, I don't know, secret society of like, you know, get what you can, you know, kind of thing. And, yeah. and, and it's like, well, no, we, we should think more intentionally about that. Um, and then, you know, power, it's, we don't really even understand the power of, of leadership. I don't understand the power yeah. of leadership. One of the problems I got into on Twitter just uh, a month ago is that I don't realize that people look at my tweets different now that I'm, that I'm a leader of a church, mm-hmm. that I'm a pastor of a church. I just, I'm just Dan, you know, I don't think of myself as yeah. a leader. I just, but other people do. And I have to now think differently about how I tweet, which in one sense is flattering, but in the other sense kind of sucks. You yeah. know, I can't just be willy nilly anymore. I have to be more careful. And then the sex stuff I think is just, it has to do with shame. There's yeah. just so much shame around sex and largely that's the church's fault. And so in order for them to really talk meaningfully about sex, they first have to, I think, uh, wrestle with the shame of uh, surrounding sex. Um, 
And I think what happens is, is when it comes to shame, the shame is on a spectrum with arrogance. Arrogance is on the other end of the spectrum. And what happens is we see the devastation of, that shame has on sex. And I think one of the dangers is that people will swing the other way and have more arrogant perspectives about mm-hmm, sex. Mm-hmm. And how that looks is, you know, there's a, a million ways that that can look. Um, but I think uh, the way I've looked at it is I think that, yes, we should absolutely preach more about sexuality um, but at the same time, we have to do that in a way that also keeps sex as a personal kind of private thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's the danger is that, okay, well, if we're going to be less shameful about sex, then we're, that means that we have to be more open about our sexuality. And, and then suddenly you're in this weird thing of, because uh, shame wants to be held in private. Yeah. And shame wants boundaries. Yeah. And arrogance wants to destroy boundaries and, and have it all out in the open. And I think that um, uh, sexuality should be something that we talk about in the open. But my sex life, I think, should be something that is more private with mm-hmm. my partner or whatever. Or whatever audience, yeah. how small it is right. you choose to share right. with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, so I agree with you, but at the same time, I also don't, uh, I don't know what I think yet about the Jesus thing. Because really? I, I think that um, there's something, like I'm, I'm thinking about having kids, you know. It's like I I want to be able to have conversations with my kids about sex so that they can, they always feel comfortable talking to me about sex. But I don't want to watch them have sex. You know, yes. that's their own business, you know. That's, yeah. That's their own life. And so yeah. I would think that, that Jesus would also respect it. Like, it's just kind of like <laughs> this. part of the blessing of it is it's just between you two. And mm. so I feel like um, in order to amplify that the nature of that blessing, I think that this is really weird theologically, but I think I'm open to the idea. <laughs> I'm open to the idea that Jesus can just leave that and not know what's going on there. Huh. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's absurd. And maybe that's my own shame talking, too. Maybe. So. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I just, for me, I can't, I can't separate. I can't think that, um, and I used to. I used to force myself to believe that there's this velvet curtain. I'm poor. Mm. Okay. Bye, God. You know, you can't see what's going on over here. Um, But a lot of that was shame, too, because that was during a time in my marriage where okay we were post working on infidelity and then I jumped into hardcore evangelical Christianity and then it was like I hate myself for everything and then it was like we can't do that in bed anymore (laughs) nope can't do that either nope oh my gosh no can't do that and it was it was a lot of shame and it was a lot of that kind of purity culture kind of talk that you get where you know you're just supposed to be you're supposed to lay in bed together and barely touch each other, just rub up against each other a little bit. That's it. And I thought, that can't be that. Right. And then, yeah, I don't think it need, needs to go to the exploit, exploitation side of the spectrum either. And, uh, you know, there's people that do that. Right. If that makes you happy, I'm not judging you. I'm not going to participate. But um, I worry about the restrictions and the boundaries we do put on sexuality. Um and I realize that some couples get a little too specific. They're like, Pastor, are fellatios okay? You know, I mean, and you got you got your pastor going, now I have to think about this. Okay, I don't know how to talk about that. And so that I think is too far. But it's like cre- saying, okay, whatever you all got going on mm-hmm. in your room, whatever you're doing, as long as you two are okay with it, do it. Do it. Yeah. And, and, so that's but, the consent 
consent. It's all about the consent. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. My, uh, something that I'm thinking about about the consent stuff, and I'm so glad that we're talking about this because you've probably thought a lot more about this than I have. And I'm just starting to look at it um, because I think that consent sounds good because it has to do with personal liberty. Mm-hmm. And um, and when you look at things that are bad, you look at like rape as bad you yeah. know, because there's no consent. There's no liberty there. And um, But consent is sort of a fuzzy thing too. You know, when you look at like, because I've worked with kids who were sexually abused, mm. and and you know they're twelve, thirteen years old, and they're they're being very erotic and they're being very sexually kind of flirty with like these adult men who are working at this place, you know. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we had to do is we had to redirect those behaviors and mm. say you have to stop doing. I mean, just very erotic poses and trying to get us sexually excited, and we had to like set boundaries with mm. them, say you can't do that, and because. They were consenting to this, yeah. but th- because only because they had this very flawed understanding of sex and yeah. relationship, and and so from a consent perspective, you'd say, well, hey, she wanted it, obviously, you know, but did she really? Because mm, that yeah. consent was that the consent, product so consenting of, adults. Then, well, right, and 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 that's where, and then there's other issues there, like how old, because people have flawed understandings yeah, of sex and do. authority. Well into adulthood. Oh, I agree. I told my kids, I was like, wait till you're 25. Your brain should be done developing by then. (laughs) And then you'll make rational decisions. (laughs) I'm a grandmother already. So, I mean, that kind of advice went out the window. So, you know, what do you do? And and that's that's part of the spiritual discipleship. deals with all those things. And sometimes we consent and we think we're consenting when really it's this flawed worldview that... Yeah. has forced us to consent and yeah. to do these things. And, and I think spiritual discipleship a lot of times is triggered by, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And mm. it seems so right at the time, but now looking at it, I see that it's not. Why would I think that that was right? Mm. And then you can start to unpack some of the things that led you to consent to do this thing that now you regret. And, and, and so that's where... I think that's the shift. It's like mm. consent and purity culture is there's something we want to be pure, but purity culture is very flawed in its process of doing that. Uh, and and then consent is sort of the answer, but that's also very flawed. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, wow. So I'm wrestling with that. That's a uh, good point in that out. Now I'm going to wrestle a little bit more with that. No, but I mean, when I am speaking, I mean, and then sometimes I do write and speak to sexuality a lot. I'm always like consenting adults. Yeah. Consenting adults. Because, I yeah, I think, but then sometimes you do want to break it down and you're like consenting adults that have had therapy. <laughs> do you good. know their childhood trauma? And right. are you exploiting that? I mean, because I, I have a lot of friends who are in relationships where one of the partners has come from sexual abuse and sexual trauma, and you're like, Wow, and that's a whole new world to wrap your head around, right. especially from someone who didn't come from that place. Yeah. Um, I was just very sexually curious. I didn't have any trauma. I just think I embarrassed my parents a lot uh, <laughs> with all my questions constantly. But I did that. I'd come home from the bus, and I heard this word today, Mom. And she, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, all right. Let's talk about that then. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and did she? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. My mom was very open. I would come. One day I came home. I think I was 12 years old. I said, what's a blowjob? And she's like, where did you hear that word? (laughs) On the bus? Are they talking about that already? And I'm like, already? You know this word? Uh, What? Mm. You know? And then um, I was watching Oprah one time. 
and they were talking about oral sex, and I'm like, okay, oral, I know what an oral test is. <laughs> what is oral, oral sex, test. mom? And she just would always roll her eyes at me like I was not ready for this. And um, my dad always made it funny. Yeah. And yeah, had yeah, they were really good about that. They always answered all the crazy questions. They told they were open with us too. You know, come home and be like, "Mom, do you know what shrooms are?" Yeah, I did them. What? Mm. You know, and mom, have you ever used cocaine? And yes, mm. yeah, yeah. I grew up in the '70s. Oh, okay. You know, and so that made sense for that generation. And then I never really experimented with drugs either. Yeah. They told me about every drug out there, what it would do to you, how much it would cost you. Right. And and they had friends. My one mom, my mom had one friend who was a heroin addict. And every time she'd want to get clean, my mom would, okay, you guys are gonna sleep in the living room for a week, and we give her our room, and she'd help her. And then her boyfriend would come and pick her back up again and get her high as soon as they were driving away. And so we saw all these, and we had, you know, I, my uncles were alcoholics, and we saw what could happen. It was like in our face. Mm-hmm. So we could take from that, and I was like, yeah not gonna mess with that stuff i'm good thank you although i did get into trouble with alcohol i've learned (laughs) from that but you know you gotta learn from your mistakes it's true so i like something that you talk about and i'm wondering as you kind of touched on it earlier how it's difficult being in your position but you said criticisms are input we shouldn't ignore in your book confident humility and i really hung on to that Mm -hmm. so before you come to that conclusion how hard was it for you to really Accept that, like, okay, people are going to criticize me, but maybe I should take that mm-hmm. into consideration. Well, I, I, it's something that we have to constantly um, process because um, I think, like, sometimes I take it better than others. Um, just like a month ago, I basically had an, an emotional meltdown because of a criticism. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm like this perfect person about taking criticism because I'm not. But what I've noticed is that um, the the more I look at criticism as a criticism of something that I'm doing, whether it's an idea that I'm developing or a, 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 a writing voice that I'm trying to create, um, the more I can take the criticism as a, and apply it to this objective thing that's not me, um, the more I see, gosh, this is really helpful. Because... Especially as somebody who's creating content, you know, if if you're creating content and somebody is reacting to the content that you're creating in this way, well, that I have to ask, is that the reaction that I wanted? Mm-hmm. Um, is that are they my target audience? Are they, you know, and then you know sometimes when you can just be totally open to say, let's look at what this criticism says, and, and, and they might be right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you can do that, well, then that just takes all the pressure out of the criticism because it's, the more you can say my critics might be right, uh, the more free you are to just try something new then, you know? Yeah. Because people get so attached to this thing that they made that um, it, can make, it can add a lot of pressure to making things. Because if it's if it's that important where it's so precious that you can't take criticism, man, that's a lot of pressure, yeah. and it's gonna it's gonna disincline you from creating new things because there's just so much anxiety about that. Yeah. But when you can say, um, 
my critics might be right. Well, now you can also say, even if my critics are right, that doesn't mean that everything I've done is wrong. Yeah. It's just that they found a flaw in this thing that I created, yeah. which now the next time I create, maybe I can accommodate that criticism and do something better. And and so, yeah, that's that's sort of the, the idea. Now, when people do personal attacks... It's oh, yeah. usually just kind of, you know, ridiculous and I, that I could blow it off. And then sometimes my critics, are as passionate as they are, um, they are wrong. <laughs> and, 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 and so helping them see, I understand why you're saying that, but this, I would encourage you to think of this. And, and, um, and, and what that does is that that helps me then defend my perspective better. Mm, and so the yeah. next time I share the perspective, it'll be better. And so criticism is always beneficial, no matter what. Yeah. Um, it's, it's praise that, uh, that feels good, but usually it doesn't serve any benefit. It just reinforces what you're already doing. Yeah. And so I don't really grow from praise. I, I love praise because it's good to know that I'm on the right track with some people. Yeah. And so that's very valuable. Um, but criticism always produces the best benefit because it, it forces you to either evolve your message or to change your message in a, in a better way. So criticism is always good. Personal attacks, not so much. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you on that. It's I've come to actually, I, I anticipate it. I maybe want it. Hmm. I think sometimes I put something out there and I'm like, okay, I need someone to push back on this. Right. Because that way it, it helps me it helps me see that I'm actually understanding what I sometimes I get in that place where I'm not sure if I understand what I'm even writing right now, but I'm just gonna write it out and maybe someone will come back and go, Well actually yeah. and then I'll go, Okay, thank you for that. You didn't need to call me mean or <laughs> bitch or this or that, but thank you for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. So speaking of criticisms, are you familiar with what happened with Mr. John MacArthur and Beth yes, Moore. Yes. So, did you weigh in on that at all? What did I do about that? Um, you know, it's not my specialty. The the like, I just have friends like Tommy Horrocks. Is he's really done a lot of work in in that. And um, uh, I always call him Beard on a Bike, but um, he does the uh, um, Seminary Dropout podcast. Okay. Um, uh, I'm spacing on his name right now, but he's done a lot of work in that, and so I I, I and I appreciate their work. Um, Matthew Tebby, he's done a lot of work in this, and and I basically am persuaded by their perspectives, which is very egalitarian, and um, and you know, growing up with a, a 14 year old mom who just hustled her ass off and yeah. to raise me, uh, and you know, she worked at a power plant with where she's taking these, you know. 80 pound dumbbell bars basically and and cracking open these train cars so that coal falls out and she's working with all these you know horny men who are just constantly flirting with her and and harassing her and yet she's doing that and then not only is she doing that what all these guys can do she's doing but then she she ends up going to get her engineering license and hustles right past them up into the power plant and so basically becomes their boss and uh, you know and it's like what do I think about women's potential I think they can do basically whatever the yeah. hell they want to do. So I, I'm kind of biased right away to say this idea that women can't lead, that's preposterous. Yeah. And so, uh, and then on top of that, you see the, the type of spirit that Beth Moore has and, and um, just how um, how she she touches so many people's lives in, in a very uh, positive way in, in the sense that she is good at using her faith to build other people up and I and I think constructive ways not in like empty-headed ways like some of the 
you know, Osteens and stuff like that, but yeah. in very meaningful ways. And, and I, I, I just think that, you know, I just think that she's a great leader. And, and so I didn't really weigh in specifically. I I think um, some of the other voices, I mean, you, with, a, with an issue like this, you just really have to hear how women respond to it because they're the ones who are attacked. And some of the responses that I think were most telling was just like, it's not just the fact that he doesn't want Beth Moore to lead. It's it's the, the laughing at Beth Moore that is really Yeah, annoying. that I thought was too far. Yeah. I thought, well, and here's the thing. I, I wasn't really, I've heard John MacArthur's name. I've been told, don't bother with him. Mm. You're not going to like his stuff anyway. And so I just kind of always listen. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just keep going this way. But I forced myself over the weekend to sit through a lot of his lectures. Mm. And I was like, okay, I don't really agree with a lot of his stuff. But it seems like everyone knew that about him. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, I think right away I was like, well, he's kind of irrelevant, isn't he? <laughs> and then I thought, well, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I think we get too outraged over things. Like I remember, I, w- I follow Beth Moore. And I saw her be like, I'm just going to be tweeting about the Astros game. Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought, she said something like, let's not slander Mac. And I thought, good for her. Turn the cheek. Like, right. don't even give him the energy or the space that's because right. that's what he wanted. He yeah. wanted, obviously, he knew he was being recorded. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that day during that speech that he gave, he said a lot of really, really incredible things that I agree with. Uh, there was one point where he was rebuking men and they, you know, what's a rebuke for men today? And love your wife like Christ. And I'm like, I mean, that's good stuff. Absolutely. Do it. But then I thought, how can he go from that but keep her out of the leadership position? But then again, I go back and I'm like, well, we know that's a shtick. So I don't know why we're getting too upset over it. But I think it, in the same regard, even though it's not how I felt, I can see how other women are like, we're tired of it though. It's just, we're tired of it. And now it's a trending thing again. And it, just reiterates the fact that we think we go so far mm-hmm. and then we're like well you still can't do this yeah but at the same time watch us yes <laughs> right well and, and that's where some of the things that that this incident has really highlighted and i i shared an article a couple days ago about this that somebody wrote um she's a uh professor of history i think at calvin college but anyway um just the the he, when you take this incident with some of the other things he said about hermeneutics and just translating the Bible and, you know, people have said, have made the claim that we need to have more females and more minorities on these translation teams. And he's like, well, that's preposterous. What we need is somebody who, who knows Greek and Hebrew. That's all that really yeah. matters. And it's like, and and because and he's like, you can't let the culture uh, translate the Bible. And the point that this this author made is that, well, no, you have a culture too. <laughs> you have a culture. And and I have a video that I shared a couple years ago of this panel of, of um, Bible translators who were debating about the translation of the word slave. And they were all white guys. And it's like, you, <laughs> you can't, that's preposterous. You, mm. you need to have um, some people who have actually been affected by slavery voice, you know, have a voice in this. This is not, you know, you are not objective. We are, none of us are objective. And and to, that's just a basic reality. I mean, that's, and we can prove that with social psychology yeah. a thousand times over. Yeah. And so this resistance to having minority voices as part of, of leadership and as part of translation, just from a scientific perspective, 
it it's it's silly, but I think from a moral perspective too, if if you're if the kingdom of God that you are proclaiming is this place where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, um, and you're not living that out, I, I don't know what you're selling anymore. I just don't know yeah. what that looks like. So yeah, I thought that was interesting too when he said that when he said your the culture should basically the culture shouldn't influence the Bible, and I thought, hmm, I don't know about that. Yeah. I think I think. We need to, I mean, isn't that what we do with the times? We adjust. Yeah, these were the rules we went by or the traditions we went by. But I always go back to we didn't know everything back then. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know everything. They didn't know everything 50 years ago. What we know today, we didn't know 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So how can we just have it in an open, shut case and go, nope, it stays the way it is. And I mean, I think it's even the term, what, homosexual isn't even that old. Yeah, 1849, I think. Yeah, somewhere around there. And so it's like, it's not a word they were even dropping back then. And uh, Jesus wasn't talking about sex because (laughs) it wasn't his business. Maybe you're right. He's not watching what you're doing. Isn't (laughs) that my business? Yeah, that's Uh, one of the things that's... uh, Hard to push back. There's still a lot of people following MacArthur, though, too. Well, and, and I I appreciate what you said about MacArthur because um, I, I in the past he's also done some things that I've been in support of. In particular, he um, you know when I talk about in confident humility, I talk about the importance of of understanding the things that God has left in our lap to do mm-hmm. that that we can't just let go, let God for everything because yeah. there are some things that He has let go of for us to do. He's watching to see what we're going to do with it. Humility is one of them. Yeah. Uh, because humility has to be something that we learn to do on our own because when somebody else does it for us, that's humiliation. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. And, and so when, when Jesus says, humble yourselves, he means yourselves. You have to do this. And, and MacArthur in the past has been a, a great advocate for taking personal responsibility mm. for what God has expected of you. And, yeah. and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, we all have blind spots and we all have things that we don't see very clearly. And I think that he doesn't see how his bro culture has affected his perspective on these things. Um, yeah, that's good. Personal responsibility is not something they teach anymore. Yeah. Uh, that was the one thing. Um, well, that was the one thing I, ne- I just noticed about our local public school. It's one of the reasons I... I started homeschooling. I thought, and they were just struggling in school. So I was just, I'm just going to do it myself. And I did. And luckily it worked out for me that way. I know not a lot of people can do that. But personal responsibility is hard. Saying I'm sorry. Man, that is like the hardest thing. And it's funny. I'll say I'm sorry all the time. Like I'll go, you're right. I know. I know that about me. I can can say I'm sorry. And then it shocks people. Yeah. Are you for real? That's the fruit of personal responsibility. Yeah. If you're not responsible, then you can't be sorry. I mean, no, that's, yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and that's why apologies are so hard for people. Like, we sit there and we're like, you owe an apology. You owe an apology. You owe an apology. Right. How often do you give them, though? Right. And I think, well, I'm, all, I'm always apologizing. Yeah. Yes, I know. Yep, it was a bad day. I just took that out on you. I shouldn't have. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think, and that's related to humility also. Mm -hmm. I have a little section on confession and and how these two perspectives both warp confession, where you have the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness, this this, uh, idea that you are fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. Having those presuppositions changes the nature of confession. Because if you're fundamentally bad, then 
well, there's nothing really to confess. That's just what it means You're to be just fundamentally bad, bad yeah. right? And so then you hear Christians who will, instead of making real confessions, they'll say these very flowery, religiously kind of self-loathing things like, I am a wretched sinner. And yeah. they think that's confession, but that's not a confession. That's a, a philosophical statement. That's mm-hmm. a philosophical assumption. A confession is... I got high on crack and I fondled a prostitute. That's a confession. Mm-hmm. This is what I did. <laughs> yeah. But when you're in the ditch of smallness, it's like, well, I'm just a sinner. There's nothing, I couldn't help but do all these things because that's what sinners do. And then in the ditch of bigness, you know, where you're fundamentally good, it's really hard to confess because if I'm fundamentally good and I did these things, well, a fundamentally good person would do that. So somebody else must be responsible mm. for this. And, and so confession gets lost in there. And only when you believe that you are neither fundamentally good nor fundamentally bad, you're just fundamentally loved. Uh, but you can do good or bad things. You have that potential. Now when you do bad things, you can confess because you didn't have to do that. Yeah. Uh, you could have done otherwise, yet you did it anyway, and so you need to confess that and figure out what, what the heck you're doing. And So, yeah, I, I, I think that. apology and confession is, is intimately tied to humility, I think. Yeah, yeah. big yeah. time, big time. So you, you can wrap confidence with humility mm-hmm. without including shame or pride Mm -hmm. and what's the easy one two three step practice Mm -hmm. for that well the 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 fundamental thing is um humility has a lot to do with separating the things that you say and do from who you are as a person um Mm. i i am loved by god fundamentally and god puts me this person who's he loves with an unsurpassable love in this playground in this playground there's just all sorts of things that i can do in this playground None of these things affect the fact that I'm unsurpassably loved. No matter how f- much fun, no matter how many cool things I do in this playground, it doesn't affect my unsurpassable love in any way. If I hurt somebody, if I sin, if I do something destructive in the playground, God doesn't like that, but it doesn't affect that love mm. in any way. Um, when we don't have that unsurpassable love at our core, when we don't believe that God loves us in that way, um, we're, we're kind of forced to try to secure ourselves on our own. And now the playground becomes this place where I have to prove to the world that I'm good enough, that I'm, that I'm you know, uh, worthy or whatever. And, and everything I do now takes on this new meaning. If, I, if I'm in the playground and let's say I want to uh, learn how to play the violin, it's no longer just me learning to play the violin. It's what does this say about me as a person that I can play the violin really well. Mm. And, and that adds this extra weight onto everything. Um, confidence uh, is all about these extra things that we do. And, and security is, is who I am. Confidence is about what I do. Uh, security is this gift that God has given me in this unsurpassable love that he has for me. Confidence is this opportunity that I have. I can go and learn how to play the violin, and I can become more or less confident about that. We absolutely need security in this deep way. Uh, we don't really need confidence. We can live our lives, and because we're secure, we can go and not be confident in anything, and that'd be okay. Confidence is just like this opportunity to make our lives more, more fun, and, and mm. um, it's basically this objective assessment of how much um, trust do I have in this skill or ability that I have. And when you're humble, you live out of this this security in God's love. Now I can look at things more objectively because I don't have to prove my worth about anything. I can just look at my violin skills for the sake of my violin skills. And people might say, you know, you're you're uh, you. 
you're not good on the on the fast notes, let's say, and and I don't know music very well to have good examples, but um, and I can be okay with that because you're right, I'm not good at the fast notes, and um, I need to play slower songs in order to, you know, pull it off, and and I can say that. W- with comfort because I'm not getting any juice from this. I'm not getting any security from this. I'm already secure. Yeah. This is just something that I do in the playground, you know. Yeah. And and if you don't have that security, though, man, it just adds so much weight and pressure to everything, and it affects our performance. And and I would much rather have somebody who doesn't have raw skills but is secure in themselves. If I'm on a team, mm-hmm. I, I want people who are secure in themselves and they're not trying to earn improve anything because that can work. In the short run, you can like be so desperate to prove yourself, um, and that can work in the short run. But in the long run, it's exhausting, and and it will cause breakdowns and, and spiritual breakdowns and interpersonal breakdowns, and and so that's the short answer. Is confidence is all about the things that I do. Uh, Humility starts with this idea that you are secure on the inside. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will say I am self confident in the sense that because they feel so good about their core, uh, they you know they view self confidence as this thing about themselves as a whole. But I think confidence is very uh, about particular things. You can be confident in your public speaking. You can be mm-hmm. confident at your ability to tell a story. You can be confident at your your ability to sexually arouse your partner. Um, those are all these external things. They have nothing to do with you as a whole person. Yeah. They're just little things that you do while you're in the playground. And, um, and and that's why I think humility makes us more confident because it gives us that security so we can focus on things just for the thing in and of itself. Mm. Yeah. Do you think um, confidence maybe is backed by a little bit of courage too? Well, the courage part, that's a good insight. I think the courage part is that if you're secured in God's love, you have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just go do stuff. It's mm-hmm. just a playground. Whereas if you're not secured in God's love and this says something about you, now suddenly you're going to have stage fright yeah. and you're going to have, you know, you're going to be worried about what people think and you're not going to be able to focus on the task itself. And this is what I tell people who are have um, um, public speaking fears. Is I Ooh, say. let me listen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing is uh, people assume they they have these images of these dynamic speakers, and they just think in their in their deep down they think that these people are better. These mm. people, there's something really special about these people. They lose sight of the skills and they see the person. And and um, but the fact is is that most people don't give a crap about you. They just want to hear what you have to say. Yep. You know, they just want to hear what you have to say. Now, you might be able to say something in a way that people really like, in which case the next time they hear, they like you more because mm-hmm. of what you've said. But at the first the first time you speak, the first time they've heard you, they just care about what you have to say. Yeah. You know, but people think they care about me, and they don't. They just don't care about you. Eventually they will if you do a good job. Um but uh, yeah, so and then they will care what you look like, and they will talk about what shoes you're wearing. <laughs> right. And oh my gosh, did you see her hair? No, <laughs> right, right. Well, and and that's the thing is is people make such a big deal out of it, like um, because it means so much if I'm a dynamic speaker, and that ends up sabotaging your ability to be a dynamic speaker mm-hmm. because you just get so worried about that. If uh, what I've always that's, that's always helped me is um, is to just like try to find something as quick as possible to be self-deprecating um, because then it sets a clear message to me that I don't have to be perfect 
and it sends a message to my audience to not expect perfection. Mm. And it just lowers the, the stress everywhere. So the quicker I can do something dumb or self-deprecating, the quicker I can get to this place where, okay, now we can all just be more real. And, and you know, if I don't know something, you know, I, I, I've often said, I don't really understand how this works, but da, 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 this is what I'm going to talk about. And, and the quicker I can do that, the, the more at ease everybody is, including hmm. me. That's good. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel more assured than I used to when I watch some TED Talks and I'm like, oh, you can hear they're nervous. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to work on because I know you can hear when I'm nervous too. Yeah. I get really rattly, but yeah. that's good to just... Yeah, see, and I would never do a TED Talk because mm. I would be nervous doing a TED Talk because they're so formulaic and they're so like uh, structured and you have to do this and you have to do that. And it's like, I, I wouldn't do that. I want to just be a human being. I'm just a human being who has studied tree frogs and I want to tell you what I know about tree frogs. Yeah. That's all I want to do. I, you know, all of this stuff about, well, you need to have this posture and you need to have a display your confidence to the audience. It's like, that's all BS. Yeah. Just be a person who has something to share with the audience. I can do that. Yeah, exactly. So you said recently in one of your podcasts, Uh-oh. <laughs> I thought, well, that was unexpected. <laughs> There, there might, there, the advantage of atheism. Sometimes oh, I think it would be easier to be uh, an atheist. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, in particular, that comment is, uh, <laughs> uh, that was an outtake, first of all. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the you know, the, the charge that atheists have is that religion is just a crutch. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that has not been my experience. Religion has been a pain in the ass. It's yeah. kind of been my experience. And I would rather just be able to find my own truth and live my own life and to not have to go to church on Sundays and to sleep in on Sundays and to not have to listen to terrible worship music and, you know, all of these <laughs> things that I have to endure and to, to try to model my life off of this guy who lived 2,000 years ago and to try to figure out what truths that the this scripture has that is not culturally dependent, that transcend cultural dependence and have to apply to my life and adjusting myself for that, that's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, it'd just be so much easier to just pff, do whatever I want and blow all that off. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I tend to think of religion as, as um, a, a tough journey uh, for people who want to take their existence seriously. And atheism is sort of this crutch for people who just want to, you know, blow through it and, and um, wing it, you know. And mm-hmm. th- so that's that's what I think about that. I, and there's a lot of atheists who spend a lot of time attacking religion, and and there's a lot of really good um, arguments against faith. I, but that's part of why faith is not a crutch. Yeah, Sam because, Harris makes some good arguments, but I want right. to tell him you're just looking at the wrong theology, right. though, too. Well, yeah, that's the you're thing. You're judging that's, the wrong theology. That's not yeah. That's, that's and true. then you're all, like all of those Dawkins. That's and, right. Yeah, they all go against a Calvinist God almost yeah. always. And, yeah, and that's definitely. too easy. It's so easy. Yeah. I think um, I was just, my daughter, she's 20, and she's been, I was talking to her boyfriend yesterday. We talk about God, and he likes to talk about what happens when you die. And um, my daughter's just not dealing with God right now, mm. which is weird because I've never really kind of pushed it on her, but I've always been like, it's an o- constant open conversation. Right. We did church and Sunday school and confirmation and where are you at now and oh what about this and do you want me to talk to you about Buddhism and you know try and get her involved but it's like in this space she's at right now she's just eh, it's just not important and I'm like you just had a baby (laughs) it's kind of important you just had a baby that's God 
you know, and it's hard. But she's also, I think, and I see this with a lot of people, and I know I have a lot of friends that are atheists, and I just think it, it feels like there's something missing in your life, though, right? Yeah. That's God. Hmm. And for me, it's hard. I think I heard you say that, and I'm like, I've thought that, too. You know, and you want to go, well, what if those atheists are right? Or what if those those ideas that it, you're, it's just nothing? Isn't that what Dawkins says? It's just, it's nothing when you die. What if that is right? And I just think, eh, I can't wrap my brain around that idea. I can't wrap my brain around the whole cosmos being what it is and then pitch black. <laughs> right. Um, but I do think that there's some push, and it's, I mean, the social media is trying to be our God. Politics is trying to take over religion. Mm-hmm. And I think people are getting really caught up and they're losing meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. and I really and I I have a friend who's atheist who also suffers from depression and I'm always like have you tried Jesus that's not gonna work it could yeah have you really tried okay well have you tried Buddha you know have you I'm not gonna I don't want to recommend Islam because it's a hard-ass religion to wrap your brain around but um I had a very close friend who is a Muslim and he's tried to convince me it's the religion i'm like too many rules can't do that but you know i try and i say you know have you tried all these it's i can't because their identities wrapped around being an atheist now right and if i change that what else does that mean that i won't believe anymore well he's a hardcore progressive liberal Mm. you're not going to stop wanting to be that just because and i think that's what the problem is with a lot of people they're scared to believe i've been an atheist my whole life all my friends are atheists everything we do is atheist <laughs> if i start going to church or if i start reading some book it might shift everything but it might shift everything for the better right because again i say i say this especially the people i see suffering with depression and just feeling like i don't know what to do with my life mm-hmm. have you tried giving it to god right i mean, do you have people come in here who are atheists or that you know of that have entered into this church and mm-hmm. have felt Oh, the transformation I've been like this is absolutely. what I've been missing and yeah. absolutely Greg has really touched a lot of people in that way um, and so I know of many people who were in that spot when they came here uh, and they have now found God and, and they have a meaningful faith and and I think um, you know it's here's here's here, there's so many elements to this I think we we all have you know there's a lot of silly things that seems silly about faith on the on the face of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, the fact that God is three in one. I mean, that's... Yeah. What? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I understand. This is why Christians should always have humility, because that's a very weird belief. Uh, a lot of Christians believe in Satan. That's a very weird belief. Mm-hmm. And that people should have humility if they believe that, because that's a strange belief. But at the same time, what, what this all offers is it, it taps into this the sense that all of us have because if you don't have God all that you have is whatever you can produce on your own yeah. and your relationships are always going to be based on how much value do I add to their life and it's always going to be a conditional relationship yeah. it's always going to be am, am I worthy to them and so you're always living you're always trying to add value and to earn yourself and to earn your place and to prove yourself yeah. and and there's this sense in which this is not really love this is all conditional and we're made for a different type of love where 
we we don't have to earn it, where we just live out of the worth that we already have. Mm. And I think that we all sense that, and yet we get stuck in these treadmills where we're constantly trying to earn our love and to prove our worth, and it just feels wrong, and it leads to depression because that's not what we're made for. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you come into Christianity and you realize, no, you have this worth already, and you can just live out of that, and that's good enough, and and if, if... the world might not see it because they live under a different pattern. And um, and I think that people, that taps into something very deep. And there's a lot of things like that. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. And, and then you start to realize that some of these beliefs that seemed kind of silly on the face of it um, actually have a lot of philosophical depth to them and solve other philosophical problems that are are hard to solve without it. Mm-hmm. And the exa- one of the examples is, is um, the fact that you know, Christianity has this belief, which I do think is a very strange belief that God is three in one. It's a very mm-hmm. strange belief. Yep. But in philosophy, we have this problem called the one and the many. Everything seems like it it originates from one thing, but it can't originate from one thing because that doesn't account for the diversity. So ultimate reality must also then be a multiplicity. Mm-hmm. But it can't be a multiplicity because of these other philosophic reasons. It has to be one. And so ultimate reality has to be both one and a multiplicity. And Christianity has this very weird belief that ultimate reality is three in one. Isn't that something? I mean, there's just so many weird things like that 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 uh, come into play. And then you, you, uh, you have like... Um, well, I don't want to start to defend all the weird beliefs, but but the point being that uh, I think that Christianity, if it's true, um, does help and does meet this need that a lot of people without God have. And, um, and they just have to work through some of the apparent strangeness of the beliefs yeah. to get to that. It's, uh, it's the, what is it, the chewy center in the, the lollipop, I guess. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, to wrap your head around these radical concepts. That's right. that they, are, and they are very radical. They are, but I think that's the point. I think so. I yeah. Think so. And I, in psychology, too, I mean, when you think about it, when you break down the psyche, it's in threes. Hmm. I've just recently been reading about the shadow of the third. Oh, really? Um, that exists in all hmm. relationships that we don't even consider. And yeah. I thought, wow, that this whole triune understanding of mm-hmm. basically everything is yeah. pretty impressive oh, gosh, and Greg, coincidental. Greg was almost manic in the early 2000s, late 1990s, about the three. And he has this chart. It's on Renew somewhere, this this chart of threes in science. And, this, and it's, yeah. just, it's, very, it's very much like a manic episode. It's just it's all this stuff. So, yeah, there's probably something to that. Probably. I think Jung writes on synchronicity, so he should probably... To yeah. back to that and see if he can... Speaking of manic, yeah. Carl Jung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a little manic over him lately. Like, how many books can I get of his and consume in the next year? I read that um, he... So I think Nishi has like six to 700 pages of writing that he actually did. Um, Carl Jung's notes on Nietzsche are like 10,000 pages. Mm. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So. Um, so speaking of books, what's next for you? Well, I uh, I would love to do a, a book on open theism, um, and uh, but uh, I have some people who would like me to write a book on depression. I might do that. So I'm not sure exactly, but volume three of uh, the training of KX12, uh, the mm-hmm. cover is almost done. So I got to get that written. So that's that that has to be done. So that's a series that I do. It's like a modern version of the Screw Tape Letters. Yeah. So that's probably the very very next is getting that done. Yeah, I've read volume one. Thank you for volume two. I'm gonna You're get welcome. through that. And uh, people can expect me to probably ramble about that. I've been waiting to read volume two. Mm. 
It's uh, I read it. I had my kids read Screw Tape, tape oh, Letters. Yeah. Um, and they That's were like, cool. "This is wacky." Mm. And I'm like, "I know." And then I saw your book. It was like within a few months after I had them read it, huh. and I had just finally given myself permission to go into Lewis because my husband deployed for Iraq. He's like, I want mere Christianity. Hmm. Everyone says I need to read that book. Who's that guy? He hmm. wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, don't hate me. I still haven't read any of those books or seen those movies. I've but only seen one. I yeah. Just, and I've only read one. And um, so we bought like all of the C.S. Lewis books, Mere Christianity and The Problem with Pain. Or, and, yeah. um, and then I got The Great Divorce. And anyway, I, just working my way through, and someone had told me, have you read his, his screw tape letters? And... It was about that time after, long after. Kids read it. I came mm. across your book. I got one of my kids to read volume one. Mm. And they were like, yeah, that is kind of like Screw Tape Letters. That's cool. Mm. I like his writing better. Lewis's? They liked your writing oh, better. Oh, my writing. Well, um, it's, yeah. Lewis is old English. Lewis is, so yeah, yeah. He's old school. Yeah. So you got that coming out. Yeah. And then you're still, once in a while, how often are you... Are you preaching here? You know, it, it, it's I'm on the staff now, so it's whenever um, my kind of knowledge set matches what we're doing in the series. So the next sermon I'll be doing will be in late November, and I really I'm a big creation care guy. I love nature, and I hate what what I hate pollution and I hate destruction of nature, and um, and so I'm going to do a, a, a sermon on. Um, Finding God in Nature, and um, yeah, so that'll be my next one in November. Yeah. So yeah, probably 10, 12 times a year, I'll do a sermon on the big stage. So, and that's that's a trip. I mean, it's it's really fun. Yeah. Because I put a lot of work into that, and um, and that's always fun to to be able to put so much work into something and then to be able to present it to a crowd. It's it's a great feeling. And I enjoy watching them. On I'm subscribed to Woodland Hills on YouTube. Oh, good. And I download the podcast. And yeah, I was lis- I listened through eight of them. I hadn't listened to them in a couple weeks. I was listening to them all last night, yeah. and I was like, okay, here's here's where we're gonna go. So that's where I picked up on some of those questions. Oh, but cool. um, did you read um did you read Mere Christianity? Mm. You, you read that one. Did mm-hmm. uh, what did you think of that one? Did you? I had to read it three times. Oh really? Okay. I didn't get it the first really? time. Really? No. Okay. No. Um, I just didn't have the headspace for it. My husband read it in Iraq, and mm. he really liked it. And I, I was kind of mad. I'm like, how'd you get it? Um, yeah, and I think after we both had went through that, we hopped over to Greg Boyd's book, Myth of a Christian Nation. Mm. Oh, my God. Did that shake us? Really? It shook. Well, my husband was, well, in, the was military. in the military. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I'm like, We're- you have to leave the military. <laughs> you have to denounce the military. We are done voting. And oh, he's man. like, no. And that um, that created such a fight too because we interpreted that book so differently. Yeah, he was just like, I don't think that's how the book was supposed to work for you, sweetheart. Yeah, it was good stuff, and it was hard to, it was really hard after that. But I've settled down now. I went from resenting everything that I knew was a lie to, yeah. you'll figure it out. Y'all yeah. get there. Right. So that's where I'm at. Oh. All right. Well, cool. A special thank you to Forever Sound for their musical clip, Sexy, which you hear within the podcast. For more information on how to connect with me, seek me out on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter at D Kingstrom, Instagram at D Kingstrom. For more of my work, please check me out on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. You'll be able to see more of the content I create 
excerpts from my upcoming manuscript and fleshed, making a monogamous relationship real. And you can also support my work. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.